0: May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, my strength and our Redeemer. We be seated. I don't know if the reader was trying to give me a hint by cutting out the second half of the reading, but I'm going to preach the whole thing. And so y'all just got to buckle up. This is what happens when you have a former Baptist um, come into the pulpit to preach for you all so you might be here for a minute but I think you'll yeah. live. I did want to again apologize if at some point in this message I get unclear because um, like I told you my mouth is a little bit sore. What I do think as I spoke to the other service this morning that it's a little bit appropriate to speak with a bit of physical pain because I know there may be people in the congregation who arrived this morning with their own sense of pain and discomfort as it relates to the church. Those of you, hopefully I can, I can, I can wax existential for a moment because we're in existential times, right? Um, last week when I stood before you, I had 30 seconds to maybe speak to you all. And I alluded to the story of Lazarus. And I I said to you, this sickness is not unto death, but that God might be glorified. Those are the few words that I said. For those of you who attended to the news, especially here locally, it seems like things have gotten worse. And those of you who know about the story of Lazarus, it's when Jesus actually arrives there. And he tells him to roll away the stones so that he might be able to perform his miracle. They said, but Lord, he stinketh. There's a fear that... Things would go worse, and so maybe it's just me, but sometimes I feel like that as it relates to the church, but it stinks. Forgive me once again for continuing on with some existential reflections before we get on into the text. I'm going to ask a couple more. You ask yourself, what is the Bible, this thing that we carry to and fro that we read from every week here in church? What is it supposed to do? This might seem like a strange question to ask, given all the questions I could be posing, but I'm asking for a reason. On the one hand, the Bible, it gives comfort, guidance, instruction. But what does it actually do in the life of the Christian? What does it do in your life? Because parts of it don't instruct us, at least not in a straightforward way, right? Parts of Leviticus, we don't know what to do with and for some people, the Bible is a place where you go to settle theological debates about this idea or that. So they think of Ephesians. Yes, let's fight about Calvinism. You look around and you see Christians of every type. Baptists, Anglicans, Methodists, Presbyterians, non denominational folks, Roman Catholics. And so you think, who's right? And you turn to the Bible for weapons in not theological war. Now, I teach New Testament. I think the Bible is important theologically. But I want to make this claim that all theology, all biblical theology, is ultimately pastoral. What I mean is that Paul, Moses, Isaiah, and Jesus were rarely, if ever, trying to settle our intellectual curiosities. They were trying to teach us how to live. The Bible at bottom is always about the life before God. And yes, I consider the Bible inspired, so we're not going to play games there. But one way to look at the Bible see, it's the collected wisdom of the family of God as to how to live faithfully. And the traditions that we have, things like these funny vestments and the liturgy and the collects and the prayers, they on the same level as the Bible, but they're also part of our family tradition, ways we figure it out as to what it means to live before God. And that's the reason why we're a liturgical church, because we don't toss these things away casually even we don't even know what they mean anymore we thought it was important to somebody let's keep doing it where does that leave us the gathered people where does that leave the church the church is the place that remembers the family that holds and continues in this testimony in every generation we are the continuation of the story We've been handed something, we must hand it on to the next generation. I say all of this, I know there's a Bible passage I gotta get to, I'll get there. I say this for two reasons. First, there are times when the church feels like the least safe place in the world to be that it is not the place that remembers, that it's the place that wounds. That we're ripped apart. By a thousand controversies and schisms, I say that because I'm sure at least some of you know that there are sexual abuse allegations at a church here locally. Not to mention the particular trauma that has visited upon this place. There are people here then who are hurting. Let me say this as, as clearly as I possibly can to any survivor. I'm sorry what has happened to you and all the ways which the church has failed to support and protect you. We will do better, we can do better, and you do deserve better. I remember when I lived in Boston during the height of the sexual abuse scandal in the Roman Catholic Church. I was a newly minted deacon, and we were in downtown Boston, and we ran into a homeless man who didn't know that I was Protestant. And he came up to me in his thick Boston accent, forgive me if I can't say it, bless me, Father, bless me, Father. And I couldn't explain to him that I was actually a Protestant in this denomination that's even thinking I'm a real priest. What could I do? So as a deacon, now you're not to bless people yet. What, what are you gonna do? So I gave him a blessing. <laughs> a few days later, I was in town again and I had my same clerical collar on. But this time the mood was different there is a clear sense of you are one of those Catholic priests who abused those children. And I was tempted in that moment to stand up and say, I'm not a Catholic priest. But I realized that things weren't that that simple. I am a part of a church and a priesthood. It's been a blessing and a curse to people and I cannot separate myself from it. I'm caught up in it. When the clergy fail, I fail. And I receive your distrust as a part of the cost of doing ministry. I can only do the best that I can in my context to be a source of healing. When I was sorry, this is not a part of the sermon. When you're a kid, you have these dreams, right? You just want to be a priest. You know? I want to tell people about Jesus. That's all you wanted to do. And you find yourself in this of a thousand different controversies, week in and week out. And you just wake up every day just trying to do the right thing as best as you can. Not to be a hero, you just want to damage people. You don't want to get in the way of God. We, We all dress the same because we should disappear and get out of the way so that we can be a place of meeting between God and humanity. I want to be able to create a place. I got to do my job. Sorry. I got to keep preaching. I want to create a place where people can lay their heads and feel loved by God. And this is the job of this church and every church. And we can't quit that work because God, help us. We believe that the resurrection is true, the tomb is empty. The church then even when it is hard, must always remember its vocation as a meeting place between God and humanity. This is exactly what Paul was doing in the first chapter of Ephesians. Ephesians was a port city. And those of you who know anything about port cities, port cities attract culture. I don't wanna throw shade to my adopted home of Wheaton, but nobody moves to Wheaton to make it. you move to Wheaton to settle because the property taxes are too high in the city (laughs) and you can't afford a house you want a yard so you move out here but when you're young and foolish you'll say I'll pay all of this to move into Chicago and make my way I'm an artist I'm a singer I'm a poet I take my culture and my talents to the city or you move to New York or San Francisco somewhere in California this is where you go to make it right This is what Ephesus is. It was the place that people went when they wanted to make something of themselves to be somebody. You left Wheaton, you went to Ephesus. There in Ephesus was the governor of the province. So you had an interest in politics. You had to make your way in the world. You had to go to Ephesus. You're going to be a politician, where do you go? You go to Chicago, New York, Washington, D.C. Not only did they have politics there and culture there, in Ephesus they had the, the cult of Artemis. Who've been worshipping for centuries, the God of new life, birth, and festivals. And so the entire life of the community was centered around Artemis. So what I want you to understand is they had their own culture, their music, their religion, and their politics that shaped the way they lived their lives. Good Roman citizens went to the right festivals, to participate in these things. Well, how does the church run into this? These disciples of John, who existed there, who hadn't heard about the Holy Spirit. The apostles go, this is described in Acts 19, and they preach the gospel, and these Jewish people get converted, and then a large influx of a largely Gentile community also joins, so the congregation emphasis becomes largely Gentile. When the Gentiles start converting, it starts messing with the economic life of the city, because you got a lot of people who become Christians, and they're not participating in the hospitals, they're not buying the, thing, the the idols, and so it's now starting to touch upon the money of the community. And let me tell you something. You can believe what you want to believe until you touch the money. So what happens? There are riots there. Riots in Ephesus. And there was also an attempt to co-opt Christianity for their own ends. They said, well, hold on. These Christians seem useful. So that Ephesus is those places, those of who read the book of Acts, where it says, In the name of Paul, I cast out this thing. We say, well, hold on. We don't want to practice Christianity. We're going to use Christianity for our own ends. And so, this will want you to understand what's going on in the church in Ephesus. There's cultural pressure to return or to abandon Christianity because it's, it's getting kind of difficult to be a Christian there. There's pressure from both sides. The Jewish people are calling them fake Jews because they they're not keeping the law. There's Gentiles who are saying they're bad Roman citizens. they are riots. And there's a lot of pressure. So the person who was converted to Christianity in this context might begin to wonder, is it still worth it? Now, those pressures are not the same pressures that we experience, but we've been there before, right? We got to the place where we said, is any of this worth our time? When the church has disappointed us in a thousand different ways. And it feels like it would be easier just to go to our old life, the one that we had before we ever met Jesus. I give you that background because Paul didn't just wake up one day and say, you know what? In a couple of thousand years, there's going to be a calvinist arminius debate, and I need to settle it. <laughs> so I want people to know the relationship between divine sovereignty and free will, so I'm going to write chapter 1 and chapter 2. So the people have to say, shut up, you were chosen by God. Take it or don't take it, right? When I teach, when I teach in um, at Wheaton College, I tell my students different chapters are different groups' moments, right? So my Pentecostal brothers and sisters can't wait to get to Acts, and I can see my Presbyterian brothers and sisters' their eyes light up when we get to Ephesians, like this is our moment, (laughs) this is it, this is it. But this is not what this passage is about. It's about a people living under pressure. He's giving them a vision of the life that could replace the one that they had lost when they became Christians. This is the reason why Paul opens this section of the letter with a blessing. Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed with the every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. His whole point is, God has given you a life. What do you have when you become a Christian? He says you have everything that you need. And this is the other part. When he talks about choosable for the foundation of the world, you must understand this as a manifestation of pastoral care. I'll use an example. I know most of you aren't in high school anymore, but you can remember high school. Imagine a boy, I can only be him the the boy, forgive me, I'm limited here. And he comes up to you and he says, I'd love for you to go to prom with me. I've asked three other girls, they all said no, you're my fourth one, will you come? I mean, you don't want to. I mean, you could be the fourth, but you don't want to. You don't want to know that, right? You want him to say you were the only one I've ever loved. So when Paul says to them, "God chose you before the foundations of the world," this turned the practical point. He was telling the Gentiles, "You're not the B team whom God has turned to after the Jewish people rejected Him." His point is, God from the beginning always intended to create a family of Jews and Gentiles under the lordship of Christ. Seven times in this section, he says that you're chosen before the foundation of the world in Christ. In Christ is the important part. Not only is he saying that God always had a plan to bring you into his family, but he always had a means. So he's going, I know that the crucifixion seems like a really, really weird thing to do as a means of reconciling the world to himself. But God didn't go, oh, what should I do next? Jesus, you go fix it. Paul's point is that God always planned to do it this way. So Paul is saying to the people who are there, who are wondering about their place, you are highly valued and treasured by God, and he always wanted you to be a part of his family. He uses the language of adoption here. Adoption in the first century is much different than our adoption. We think of like someone going to maybe an orphanage and picking the cute little baby and raising the baby up as his own, right? That's how we think of adoption. But adoption in the first century is actually the adoption of adults. Children, you'll like this. Let's say you, there's two of y'all floating around and mom and dad don't like either one of y'all. <laughs> and say, so, you know, I'm not like giving you anything when I die. You all are kind of no good. But that's a, imagine this. This would make college a lot different. They went to Wheaton one day and said, you know what? That kid there seems like he's got a lot of promise. <laughs> I'm going to adopt him and give him all the stuff. That's how adoption works. The emperor chose his son by adopting him into a family and making him the heir. In other words, adoption is based... That's good, right? Imagine that your parents are saying, you know what? I'm still analyzing whether you get anything. <laughs> that may how change how you live, right? So adoption... It was an adoption based upon the assessment of your worth. So you know who didn't get adopted? Slaves. Women. The poor. So imagine being an economically, socially alienated Gentile congregation and say that the God of all creation, the most powerful being in the world, had as his plan you. He always wanted to adopt you and call you his own. So what is Paul trying to say in this portion of Ephesians? Who are you? Who are we? We're the adopted ones, the chosen ones, not because of the things that we've done or because of who we are or because of some innate talent that he saw in us, merely because he loves us. How much are you valued? He talked about the redemption through the blood of His Son. When you think about the innocent, the children, women, all of us, God valued us enough to send the second person of the Trinity and to die on our behalf. And Paul refers to this as a manifestation of his wisdom. You know, forgive me, I did not plan on crying, or I can say I held back. I think I, I can say I held back. <laughs> I'm going to claim that. But I talked about how Christianity, I had in the notes how Christianity has the ability to make us cry, precisely because it is when you come into contact with God's power. And God's weakness at the exact same time. In other words, when we think about the creator of the universe, we could be afraid to approach him. Who could come before the living God? Right? We had this idea that we're gonna come before God at the creation, at the end of all things, and ask him all of these questions and problems we have with Christianity. No, that's not how it's gonna play out. <laughs> when you become before the living God, you're gonna be like, please, I hope I make it onto the team. But the but the cross, God's weakness allows all of us, even children, to feel like they can approach him. What I want you to understand is that God was wise and how he chose to win us to himself. Not with a display of power, with a display of love. But here's the other thing about the God's wisdom in the cross. It allows us to do two things simultaneously. It allows us to take sin with utter seriousness. How deeply problematic and broken is the human experience? So much so that he had to die for us. But at the moment that God is rendering his strictest judgment upon humanity, he's also given us the opportunity to begin again. And so as the church, we never, ever, ever back away from our propensity for evil. We guard against and protect people because we know what the human is capable of. The cross shows us what we can become. But Paul says that Christ, then, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his life, was the plan for the fullness of time. What did God want to do? He wanted to gather all things, all of us, bring us into his family through Jesus. And he reminds them, and I think I need to remind you all this, too. He said, you heard this, you heard this, the the true word, the gospel over your salvation. In other words, he says, don't you forget what happened when you heard the gospel. Because I can tell you this, one of the things that happened with my children, and maybe this doesn't happen with you because your children are super sanctified, maybe you don't have any children, maybe you never did this when you were a kid, but my children love me until I tell them no, and then they relitigate the entirety of their lives, he's like, can I play this video game? No, you never love me. I was like, whoa, that's a big statement, right? You never let me do anything? I was like, that's, a, that's, that's demonstrably false. Right? <laughs> but what happened is, and this is true, in their anger and in their frustration, all they can see is the moment. I can't play more Minecraft. My father has never loved me. <laughs> Those things happen, right? But this, but this is true, though. When we're hurting, we're suffering. What we do is we relitigate our past. We ask ourselves, do I actually really want to go to church anymore? Want anything to do with Christianity? Maybe it was something in my stomach that happened that day and it's just emotion and none of this stuff was true. But Paul says, no, 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 no. You heard the word of salvation. You were sitting in that church at some point in your life and you heard the gospel preached and something in you said that it was true. So God, help us. We are stuck with each other. Why do we return week after week? Because those things that occurred were real. And now for the part that you tried to cut out, I'm going to finish. Can I keep going? Paul issues a prayer. They will fully grasp all that God has for us. And he talks about their strength. In other words, Paul wants the Ephesians to see. And seeing requires spiritual courage. Because I can tell you, when you don't have hope anymore, you can't be disappointed. Right? That's the whole purpose of cynicism. If you're cynical, you're always proving right eventually. Right? But Paul says he wants them to see what is the hope of their calling. The hard thing to do as a Christian who's living in, in, in this moment is to begin to hope again. And when I talk about hope, I don't mean this positive regard towards the future. Like when I, I, when I asked my wife, will you marry me? I hope that she would say yes. I didn't know. That's not Christian hope. Christian hope is rooted in the resurrection. I know the future because Christ defeated death. So I know the hope is meant my confident expectation of what is in front of me. The hope of your calling. He uses the language here of God's inheritance. And there's two ways in which Paul uses inheritance language here. Sometimes he talks about God's inheritance, that which we receive from God. Like you have the Holy Spirit as the down payment of all the stuff you're going to get. And Paul says that in some places. But there's another way Paul uses inheritance, and I think this was going on here in chapter 1, verse 18. He talks about God's inheritance of us. So when he talks about God's inheritance among the saints he's actually saying and this might be crazy what God gets from all of this what God gets from all of this stuff all of it is you this is what God gets he gets the church why did he go through all of this suffering all of this thing? what is the purpose to which all of creation is bending and when God calls all things to himself what does he receive y'all the last thing he wants them to remember, it's God's power. The same power that rose Christ from the dead is at work among you. What I'm saying is, we look at our church, and once again, the musician. I don't. This is no shade to the musician. No shade to y'all. Our hope is not that the music's going to be good, or the preacher's going to be good, or that the that you are, your pastoral care is going to be amazing, or you're going to be so friendly. That's, none of that is the basis of your hope. The one hope that this church has is the survival the things that it's going through is the same power that rose Christ from the dead as at work amongst you and in you. The hope that you actually have to find is not hope in yourselves, but to once again trust in God's power in a time where it feels like God is weak experientially, which is why you end up back in the place of the resurrection. Is the tomb empty? Is the God who called dead things to life amongst you or is he not? So for the church in Ephesus, who's wondering, should I return back to the life that I knew? Paul says, I want you to understand that in Christ you have everything that you need. You're deeply valued by God. There's a hope that you have rooted in God's own power. There's a work amongst you and that you heard that message preached to you and you believed it and it remains true in the midst of opposition. One last part, and then I'll sit down. He, Paul, at the conclusion of this chapter, talks about Christ's head over all things for the church. Oftentimes we talk about Christ's head of the church, and we think of this idea that Christ is in charge of the church. We'll leave that aside for right now. He is in charge, but this is not what he's getting at here. He doesn't say that Christ's head over the church. He said Christ's head over all things for the sake of the church. In other words, Christ's reign. Is for our good. I'm going to t- take a detour towards the book of Revelation as a way to conclude our time together. Trust me, it'll all work, okay? In the book of Revelation, John has a vision. He's in heaven, and there are these scrolls in heaven. And these scrolls have human history written on them. And John is looking for someone who can open these scrolls and unroll human history. And in this vision, John begins to weep. Because John looks in heaven and looks on earth and no one can open the scroll. In other words, things seem chaotic. And if there's no one who can open the scroll, no one's in charge of human history. That means COVID and racial unrest and sexual violence, all of these things are all that there is because there's no one in control. You get it. And John, the the, the writer allows us to, to look at that in the face for a moment and weep. Because you got to see it for what it is. We are in a dark season. And you got to own that. You got to sit with it. But then you got to listen to the second half of what John says as it relates to what Paul says here. He says, but look, The lion from the tribe of Judah, the lamb who was slain, he is conquered, and he is the one who is able to open the scrolls. There is someone in charge of human history. This is not the end of our story. It is both the lamb who died for us, weakness, and the lion who fights for us. He's the one who is in charge. So when Paul says Christ reigns over all things for the church, it means that because Christ is sovereign, he will bring all these things to pass. And that God has done these things for us through his son because he loves us. Let me say it again. Anyone who feels stepped on or ignored today, God values you. We are part of the story that he has always longed to tell. A story of creation, fall, and ultimately a story of redemption. That each one of you are a gift more precious than gold. He gave his very own son that you might join his family. And Just so we clear, in a world that seems to be losing his mind, Christ still reigns, and he'll bring it purposes to pass. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.